I asked you if your Wi-Fi was out. No, mine, I think it's just that, um, I think it seems fine now, but it was, it has like little moments. So Marta's is fucked up, right? Yeah. Yeah, mine is out so, too, for some reason. Oh, yours is too? Ah, Mercury's yeah. in retrograde. Oh yeah, that's right, that explains it. That explains it. Oh, yeah, that's right, that explains it. Now we know, it just went retrograde yesterday. Yeah. Meh. Meh. Curses. Yeah. Curses. Curse that damn planet. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, last fall, U.S. District Judge Shelley Dick allowed the Office of Juvenile Justice to open a controversial youth facility set on the grounds of the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. Now, nearly a year later, the lawyers are back before Judge Dick, detailing the mistreatment and shoddy schooling the kids have endured at the facility. We'll get an update on the controversial jail facility known as Phase 3, and a $2.9 billion wetlands restoration project in Jefferson and Plaquemines parishes will begin soon in hopes of building up a rapidly eroding part of the state's coast by recreating the river's natural marsh-building processes. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus. Hi, Delaney. Hi. And managing editor Katie Rechtal. Hey, Katie. Hey. So, Nick, at a hearing this week, lawyers are arguing in front of a federal judge that their young clients are routinely subjected to mistreatment at the Office of Juvenile Justice Facility at Angola. That same judge had allowed to open a year ago, though. Remind us about the facility and the arguments that were made against it in the first place, and then we can talk about what um, the lawyers for the juveniles are saying now. Yeah, sure. So the kids were moved to the Angola facility, which is a former death row um, housing facility uh, at the prison last year, and there was a series of, of uh, breakouts and escapes at the Bridge City facility um, in Jefferson Parish and and some other violent incidents as well. And there was kind of an outcry that uh, they needed to find a more secure facility for, for these kids. You know, it was very controversial when they announced that they decided that they were going to move them to to Angola, this, you know, maximum security adult prison. Um, and And this legal challenge ensued. A lot of the arguments back then had to do with the fact that one, this was an adult facility, whether or not these kids would be coming into contact with, with adult prisoners, uh, which the Office of Juvenile Justice assured, uh, you know, everyone that they would not. And they put up, you know, did this sort of big restoration of this facility, including putting up uh, kind of tarping over around the fences of the facility to block it off from uh, the rest of the prison. Um, but there was also a lot of questions about um, these kids being held in cells, um, which the the other Office of Juvenile Justice facilities don't have, as well as whether or not they're going to be able to receive adequate education. They're being held really far away from, you know, any cities or, or um, most of the their families, um, and whether or not they're going to be able to hire enough staff to, to kind of provide the services that they claim they're going to be able, be able to provide for these kids. So that was kind of the, the what was discussed at the initial hearing when these civil rights attorneys were attempting to block the transfer in the first place. Um, the judge went ahead and ruled that, you know, despite the fact that 
this was not an ideal situation that that it wasn't good to be you know transferring children to this maximum security former death row facility that basically she believed the state didn't have many good options and that as a temporary solution she was going to allow it to to proceed but since then the these civil rights attorneys have, have renewed their objection based on evidence of, of what's been going on at the facility, including, you know, kids being held in solitary confinement, kids being held in excessively hot conditions and, and not receiving adequate education. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about some of those allegations, because um, there are some troubling details in your story. One of the more troubling one, ones were, were the allegations of um, the use of isolation, but they, they have all these excuses about it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So first of all, there are about 15 kids being held at the Anglo facility right now, and it's being used as this, what they call a uh, transitional treatment uh, unit. And the way it's supposed to work is kids go for a few months and are supposed to get these behavioral interventions. So it's kids who are having behavioral issues at other facilities that are ostensibly being sent there um, for this kind of more intensive treatment um but what's what's happening is is that baseline all the kids are in their cells from 5 30 p.m in the evening to 7 30 ish in the morning until they go to school but in in reality and that that's kind of that's standard but in reality right now there is only one working classroom uh, at the facility or or that was the case when at the hearing i was at at last week and mm-hmm. things may have changed some since then so what was happening is that only half the kids were being let out at a time to go to this classroom and the other half were being held in their cells for uh for the beginning of school so that means that they were you know in their cells until noon or if they were the first class and they were back in their cells you know mid afternoon so right there, that's a large chunk of the day that they were being held in their cells and, and you know, getting ostensibly getting their schooling in their cells, which really amounted to, to them doing these kind of workbooks um, and being checked on, on a, by a teacher if a teacher happened to be there that day, which um, until recently, it wasn't always the case. So that's sort of the, the sort of, you know, baseline. And if you didn't do anything wrong, that's how often you're in your cell. But they also have a cell restriction policy where if you are, you know, break a certain rule, then you will go into, they'll, they'll put you in a cell, you know, according to this document that was produced by these lawyers, anywhere from, you know, 24 to 72 hours. Um, officials at, at the Office of Juvenile Justice say these kids are still being able, being let out for, for recreation for an hour, um, are still able to kind of get their medical uh, treatment and and see counselors and are let out. In that regard, I should say that that policy pretty clearly violates state law, um, a recently passed state law that doesn't allow for solitary confinement unless um, the kid is a, has a and is an immediate threat to others. And it doesn't certainly doesn't allow it for more than eight hours. When if that child is continuing to be an immediate threat, they're supposed to be sent to a mental health facility. Right. Um, so I think on base, it's, re- it's really hard to argue that this isn't in violation of, of state law. And there's, there's solid evidence that solitary confinement is really damaging to mental health 
of all ages, but in particular for youth who are really vulnerable at that stage with their their brain development, this is particularly damaging, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, these are kids who are clearly struggling already with with their behavior and with um, certainly with all, all sorts of issues. And I think that, you know, these lawyers would argue that being held in a cell for, you know, 22 hours on end isn't isn't going to improve anything for, for these kids. Right. How does the education system work in prison for juveniles? Yeah, well, there should be, you know, a full-time teacher at, the, at these facilities and usually more than one. And that's how it sounds like for a period that that's how it was at this Angola facility. Um, and then several quit. Um, and for a while, they were actually sending uh, teachers from the other facilities to fill in but they wouldn't be there every day. So, you know, there'd be a teacher there maybe once or, you know, a few times a week, but, but not, not every day. Um, so what ended up happening is, is these kids are given Chromebooks with a kind of virtual classroom model and they, they work on those, um, for a lot of the day, but if they're being, if they're not in the classroom, if they're in their cell, then they actually can't even access the Chromebooks is, is what, um, you know, the, the new teacher at the facility testified. So, you know, it's really limited. And the newest teacher is this man, Patrick Cooper, who who has a long history in, in special education in the state and actually previously ran the special education program for, for the state Department of Education. And his testimony was pretty shocking. I mean, he was clearly very disturbed by the education that was being provided uh, prior to him arriving. And then, you know, he said basically when he got there, he didn't have any information about his students. He didn't know what courses they were supposed to be in, what grades even they were supposed to be in. Um, and half the time he was attempting to teach them in their cells, which, you know, he basically said was, you know, nearly impossible. Right. Um so this is someone with a huge amount of experience, you know, trying to do this and, and kind of in similar circumstances. And, it, and he was clearly pretty disturbed by what was going on. He did say that things had been improving recently and that he brought these concerns to, to uh, the Office of Juvenile Justice. But whether or not they can really improve uh, much and, and how quickly they can, I think, is remains to be seen. There are people who believe that kids who are arrested and are detained and or else adjudicated to a, a juvenile facility actually need more intense educational help than children that at, at one of our pretty bad public schools as well like and that that is i mean you know we always talk about trying to make our public schools better but there have been efforts in other places to actually improve schools on juvenile uh, in juvenile facilities because most kids who get into that situation have missed so much school, have been through so much misfortune, have are troubled in some way, have some kind of stuff that's held back their education in a way that that the fourth grade reading level is an average reading level for a kid who en enters most. Uh, juvenile facilities. 
<laughs> so this, so to to further ignore their needs, I guess Nick, like, was there anybody talking about? Yeah, listen, we put them on the on the Angola campus, which is you know what I guess they've called the Angola campus. We put them on the grounds of a supermax prison, and we said, hey, this is the most deep dark place for anybody who ends up here this is uh, this men the mentality of a person who ends up there is so sad and so dark that why don't we put kids in the middle of this see does it seem like a bad idea <laughs> yeah and then oh yeah by the way education how about this we'll put we'll xerox a bunch of educational stuff in it you know, once they're frustrated and they and they wreck a classroom, then we'll tell them they should be in their cells. Like, it just feels like all of this stuff is predictable by anybody who knows children, period. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the argument that people have been making kind of since since day one when, when they announced that this is what they were going to do. And, you know, I will say that the book, uh, kind of a security supervisor as well as the director of the facility testified and um, you know they tried to emphasize the kind of connection that they were making with some of these kids um, the sort of efforts that they were making to to celebrate birthdays and to uh, you know do other things to make it not quite as 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 dark, I guess, as as you described, and as it has been described by by other kids and by by lawyers. Um, but yeah, you know when, and I'm I don't doubt that there are those instances um, and those connections being made. Um, whether or not that's the kind of prevailing uh, way things are going at the facility, I you know I don't know. So, and. We should say that, that, you know, the state says that they are going to move these kids by, you know, the end of the fall. And kind of the result of this uh, hearing, whether or not, you know, if it could take several weeks for, for a judge to decide the hearing is actually still going on and, and um, will continue into next week. Um, what the difference in timing is going to be, even if, if, if a judge ruled that they need to be moved out it may only be a difference of, you know, who knows how, maybe only a few weeks or, or a month or so um, when they, until they would have been moved out anyway. All right. You have an update for us on this continuing game of chicken. Maybe it's over now on phase three. What's happening now? Yeah, we'll see. It appears that the city has fully funded the facility or at least moved a significant amount of funding. Um, and normally that has to be done through, the city council. In this case, it appears that that they just went ahead and did it without city council approval, um, which some people had been arguing that they could go ahead and do because of this federal uh, order to move forward with the facility and this risk of being held in contempt. Um, but the city until really recently said, no, we're, we have to get this approved by the city council. You know, these, this is uh, the law. But they appear to have backed off on that position. Um, so, you know, yeah, that it, it would sort of remove one of the potential uh, roadblocks to, to moving forward with this facility. There, this legal challenge by the sheriff is still pending. Uh, the magistrate judge issued a, a report and recommendation 
recommending that it be denied and that uh, that the judge uh, also order this cooperative endeavor agreement to be uh, put into place so that that would facilitate construction. And the judge hasn't ruled officially on it yet, so we're still waiting on that. But I think that aside from that, those are sort of the the administrative hurdles that um, could have further delayed this and for, could have, you know, put city officials at risk of being held in contempt of court. Mm. Um, it seems like those things now are are more or less out of the way. So, and have they also addressed the um, architecture issues about the the panopticon? Yeah, it's interesting. The, the at a court hearing last week, the architect. Um, Defend, both defended the design, said he didn't believe it was a panopticon. Um, and as we've kind of discussed, the facility doesn't look anything like sort of the more medieval panopticon structures that that kind of are popular in our imagination, where there's a giant guard tower in the middle and, and uh, several rows of, of cells uh, surrounding it. It is a single floor with a nursing and security station in the middle and then cells surrounding it. Um, but one of the main criticisms was that the, in one rendering, it looked like all these cell fronts were, were glass and you could see directly through, you know, across it, through it, uh, right. any other uh, detainee being held in there. And people argued that that would exacerbate mental illness. It turns out that, you know, according to architect in the city, those were kind of preliminary schematic designs and they presented these new renderings that where there's a uh, much less line of sight between these cells. Um, and I think that, I don't know to what degree that, that kind of alleviated the concerns of, of some of the critics, but it definitely changed, uh, you know, I think my, my perception of what the facility will, will actually look like. And the judge has basically d- determined that, that the design questions you know, have been decided. There has been input from from several mental health professionals, and I don't think he's at all interested in in sort of delaying the project based on those criticisms. Right? Can you can you go into just a little bit about the single cells versus some um, double cells that the architect is is I, I guess with some mental health professionals is advocating for, and the criticism about that. Yeah, sure. So a number of the cells are will have two beds in them. Um, and a consultant who's kind of worked for the city on and off and, and is really an expert in, in jail size and who has been a, a frequent critic of, of the phase three building um, has argued that there's never a circumstance in which people with uh, you know serious mental illness should be held in a cell with with another person. But the Lead psychiatrist at the jail, um, who's con- the, he's with Tulane and is contracted by the uh, by WellPath, the jail's medical provider, has pushed back on that and said basically it's a um, clinical determination that should be made by a team of people, and that yeah, sometimes you do want uh, people to have a cellmate in these circumstances. Um, so I'm not sure, and I've actually you know talked to Dr. Austin about this and and kind of asked him you know like. Why do you think that people are promoting this if if you you know believe it's so clinically wrong? Um, and he sort of suggested that they needed to get to the certain number of beds that were recommended, right? 
um, and that in order to do that, they were using double cells. Um, I didn't get an entirely clear explanation of why they designed the facility the way they did. It was going to be a struggle to get to the number of beds. So that that's not entirely clear to me. But anyway, there's a there's a disagreement over that. And Dr. Austin has, you know, it was called before the city council and was actually, you know, called at this hearing. So has some some voice in this and and has been arguing that the double selling is is a big problem. Hmm. Um, but like I said, like like the design in general, it doesn't seem to kind of have the ear of ear of the judge. Um, and I I don't think it will. Um, kind of impact the ultimate construction. Okay. Well, it sounds like with all these steps of late that we're moving ever closer um, to resolution on it, whether yeah, people think, are happy about it or not know, think, as a citizen. Yeah, I, I guess, I guess it is. I mean, it, I don't like to, there's been a lot. I remember having these conversations, you know, like four, four years ago and, and thinking, mm, I, I I agree. It does seem to be very much much closer to happening, and um, the city said that they were going to issue a notice to proceed to the construction company on on September fifteenth, and unless something kind of dramatic changes before then, I, th- I think that that will kind of um, be the starting point for actual construction. So, okay, Nick, thanks for these stories. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus, and managing editor Katie Rechtel. Hi, I'm Marta Jusen. If you've been a longtime reader of The Lens, you probably know we are a place to learn about important issues, especially those underrepresented by other media sources. It's hard work, and it takes a dedicated staff who care about this community. Please make a tax-deductible contribution today to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Delaney, some good news. A huge project in Plaquemines Parish will begin to create the state's most ambitious wetlands restoration project. Tell us about what's been happening and what this project hopes to accomplish. This project hopes to recreate some of the natural processes that have been disrupted along the Mississippi River. It it hopes to um, bring back the sediment that has been held um, back at earlier parts of the river by levees that were built in order to keep the the river from flooding and ruining human infrastructure. Um, So the hope is that this new diversion will bring sediment to where it is desperately needed, where land is both sinking and water is rising and what was once wetlands are becoming open ocean. We're Mm. hoping to bring the wetlands back. Give us some history on the Mississippi River in these places and when the levees were built and, and what happened to that, to the river as a result. The biggest Levee projects were started after the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927. Um, that's when the Army Corps of Engineers decided to really keep the river in one trajectory, have it go, have it flow in one direction and output in one place so that it wouldn't disrupt human life or human infrastructure. Um, and by doing that, they 
kind of took away this natural process that had been happening for thousands of years that actually created the Louisiana coast. Mm -hmm. Um, So over thousands of years, all of the sediment from the northern part of the Mississippi River had been carried down and deposited into these wetland areas and actually created all of the land that the Mississippi Delta sits on. Um, And so when that, when the river was, when that sediment was cut off, um, the land stopped building and has since started disappearing. So it's subsiding and the oceans are rising simultaneously and we're just losing hundreds of acres of, of coastline every year. Yes. The land is subsiding and the the oceans are rising at the same time. Mm, okay. And both of those processes are accelerating. So they're going to try to reverse this. How are they going to do it? They're going to dig a new diversion, essentially. They're going to create um, an area for the Mississippi River to flow into the Barataria Basin um, so that both water and that land building sediment can rebuild the wetlands in the Barataria Bay. Going to create gated structures um, on the west bank of the Mississippi River levee near Ironton. Um, And those gates will open strategically to a man-made channel that would guide the water for two miles under two new bridges, one for built for a railroad and one for Louisiana Highway 23, and ultimately to the bay. So those gates will be closed um, and opened at times of high water flow and high sediment. So how long how long do they project that this the the project might take before completion? The construction phase is going to take at least five years. Wow. Um, and they are hoping that over the next fifty years, once this distributary ridge is built. Um, that it can rebuild between 20 and 40 square miles of wetland habitat, depending hmm. on the rate of future sea level rise. So this is a really, really ambitious project. This is the most ambitious um, coastal restoration project that the state has attempted. Where'd the funding come from? The funding came from the Deep Horizon oil spill sediment, Um a, a $20.8 billion penalty that was meant to offset environmental damage caused by the oil rig explosion. Um, and so that money has gone to the state and is now being implemented in this very ambitious hmm. diversion project. In your story, you talk to someone who details um, some success that's already happening. Yes. So, um, closer to the end of the Mississippi River, so closer to the Gulf of Mexico, um, a small channel had started to open up and began to widen naturally um, and bring more river water into Quarantine Bay from the river. And this channel was known as Neptune Pass, and scientists have gone down there to, to research it and to see how this is happening naturally and to see if this could possibly be recreated at other points of the river so that we could recreate this natural process that has been taken away by all of the levees and the walls and the infrastructure that we've put in over the last 100 years. Mm. 
or more. <laughs> right. But uh, in the Neptune Pass, uh, this this new channel has been bringing both water and sediment into the Quarantine Bay, and that is rebuilding some of the marshes in that area, which is really exciting to see. Um, and I actually got to join um, a few experts and a few locals on a, a boat tour, um, and we got to see some of the newest land that was being built, you know, from the bottom of the bay up. And uh, we got to even get out and, and step on that, walk on that land. It was mm. like really, it was solid. The birds were already taking advantage of this this new land. Um, and you could see in some areas, um, vegetation had started coming back. Trees and shrubs were were forming the delta duck potato, pampas grass, cordgrass, cypress trees, willow trees were coming back, and it was it's recreating the ecosystem that had been there. Last time we spoke, we were talking about the dead zone and how this year it was smaller than they anticipated because of drought, because there wasn't as much water coming down the Mississippi. How how much will this impact when this project is completed? How much will it impact the dead zone? So this could have a positive effect on the dead zone. Um, so the dead zone is being created by nitrogen runoff that's coming from fertilizer um, up higher in the Mississippi River that is being deposited into the Gulf of Mexico because that sediment isn't being distributed anywhere. The, the sediment and its nutrients are going directly um, off the coast and into the water and creating areas of low oxygen that are killing marine life. Um, but naturally, the sediment would distribute across the wetlands of coastal Louisiana, and it would build up land that would allow vegetation to grow and ecosystems to thrive. And so that nitrogen that's currently in mixed in with all this sediment, mixed in with the river water, could disperse. If, if the land built, if the sediment um, was actually building land, the nitrogen would stick with it and allow vegetation to come roaring back as opposed to just taking oxygen away from ocean habitat. So in um, this instance, the nitrogen is a friend. It's an ally of the environment as opposed to the opposite is when it being in the I water, think, it's the I worst. I think in the short run, I think that um, too much probably still won't have a, a very positive effect. But I do think that in this immediate um, period of rebuilding where mm. we are really trying to bring these marshes back to life, that the nitrogen is going to help spawn the faster growth of these plants that need to take root and take hold and be able to survive on this new land. Mm, okay. There's been so much in the news, this, well, just the news that I listen to anyway, about um, the unprecedented climate events that we're experiencing globally this year. And um, one that caught my attention in particular was the, was the temperature of the water and the keys, um, how it's 101, 102 degrees off the keys. Is the, te is the temperature of the water in the Gulf particularly high? And what dangers does that pose for the wildlife or the, the sea life? It is high. It's not as high as 
has been recorded around the Florida Keys, but it is high and that does contribute to die-offs that are occurring because of a mix of low oxygen and the high heat. It's really dangerous for, for life. Okay. But we're going to end on this happy note that this project has been undertaken and it's a hopeful sign, which we need a few. Yes, the government broke grounds on the project and I'm excited to see how it goes over the next couple of years. Bravo. Okay. Thanks, Delaney. Thank you. Okay. Bye. 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 This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus, and managing editor Katie Rectal. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.